Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Seth Kaplan is produced in conjunction with Mass Media, a Google partner, providing businesses with traditional and digital advertising strategy and implementation. MassMedia.net. Sponsorship info for the Airlines Confidential podcast is available at AirlinesConfidential.com. I saw him doing a Skype live shot on CNBC last week wearing a shirt and tie. The question is, was he wearing exercise shorts or dress-up shorts? That's the fanciest any of us get nowadays, right? He's Ben Baldanza, former CEO of Spirit Airlines, who now teaches about how airlines work. You're just going to have to guess on that one, Seth. (laughs) And he gave up trying after five times to get his pilot's license because he couldn't parallel park his Cessna. It's Seth Kaplan, (laughs) NPR's here, now transportation analyst. Oh, pushing back from the gate, this is Airlines Confidential, the show where we share the secrets of the airline industry and debate all the crazy, and I mean crazy, things that happen in the air line world each week. Last week, we tried to find some reasons for optimism. Well, now here's another reason for optimism. We're going to talk about airline news that has nothing to do with coronavirus. Yes, in some very modest ways, people are getting on with other parts of the business. But then it's passengers behaving badly. And I mean very badly. Wait until you hear this one. And one loyal listener gives Seth a very bad idea. Mm, That's for sure, Ben. We have failed miserably to keep the promise I made several weeks ago to talk about airline news other than coronavirus. It's difficult, of course, when you're dealing with a crisis that's not only worse than each of the other big industry crises we've seen all the uh, over the years, but maybe worse than all of them combined. Right. But if you look closely, uh, some nuggets of other airline news are starting to emerge. So we'll talk about those right after we talk about Coronavirus, a big week for airline bailouts around the world. I should say, for the record, U.S. airlines say what they got is not a bailout. It's disaster assistance. But by whatever name, it's a lot of money. It's going to save a lot of mainline airline jobs, at least for the next six months. But what U.S. airlines got is nothing compared to what Singapore airlines got. $13 billion in recapitalization from its government owner. According to Airline Weekly, that's the biggest such move in the world. $13 billion for one airline that's not even as big as any of the big U.S. airlines, which all of them combined get $25 billion in grants to continue paying their people. They lobbied hard for that money. Taking it is a no-brainer. But Ben... They're also eligible for another $25 billion in loans. Ben, those would come with all kinds of strings, including the federal government having the ability to basically take an ownership stake in these airlines. Considering some of these airlines have recently managed to raise billions of dollars in the usual capital markets, do you think they're even going to take the loans? Well, Seth, I think it really comes down to airline by airline. My guess is American will just because they've got a lot of debt and they've got more balance sheet problems than some of the bigger guys. I'm not sure about United and Delta, but you know they're each going to make their own decisions and every airline is going to decide how important is this liquidity. And I think the decision is going to be largely a function of when they have to make the call. The uncertainty of when demand may return for air travel is the big deal here. And no airline's going to want to give up liquidity that they could have if they really have no sense as to when it's going to return. But if by the time they have to make the decision on the loan, 
they're starting to look at their bookings and say, we're seeing some uptick. We're seeing signs that demand may be coming back. Then some of them may say, maybe we don't have to go that far. I do think, Seth, though, that we need to think about the grants as also potentially having some strings. I don't know if you saw Larry Kudlow on TV, but he said for the grants, the government should get some warrants or some equity in the airlines, you know, for these direct grants. And I think there are some airlines, Southwest, for example, has sort of been cautious in their statements about whether they even want the grants because of the strings that may come with. And yet those grants are truly just a pass through to employees. In fact, as I understand the program, the airlines don't even get that money until they pay the employees. So it's almost like submitting an expense report. You pay your employees, you tell the government, I paid them, and then they release that part of the grant to the airlines. Yeah, so maybe not even as much of a no-brainer for the grants themselves as, as I thought. Last time the federal government bailed out airlines or assisted them or whatever you want to call it, that was right after 9-11. And the government actually made money on the deal. It ended up with shares that it later sold for a profit of several hundred million dollars. Now, that time, not all airlines took it and not all qualified. I mean, even Giant United didn't even qualify. In fact, America West ended up being kind of the most important airline that survived because of the help. It later merged with U.S. Airways and then American. But there's a big difference. Back then, it was almost the opposite. You just explained how airlines this time have to use it to preserve jobs and pay their employees. That's the main point of the money. Whereas back then, the government was almost more like a private equity fund where the conditions were the opposite. They said, you have to cut costs. Basically, you have to take draconian measures and then we'll help you. Big difference, but obviously a very different environment this time. Huge difference. And in fact, uh, calling the government stepping in like a private equity firm is exactly what it was. It was called the ATSB, the Airline Transportation Stabilization Board. And it was run by Wall Street executives with private equity experience and said, we're here to make the government money. We're going to lend you money. You're going to pay it back with interest. But in lending you this money, we're going to make sure you do the things you need to do so that you can afford to pay us back with that interest. This one, this time, it's all about preserving jobs jobs, keeping people employed so that while the economy is weakened because of coronavirus, at least people can keep paying their mortgages, paying the rent, paying their car loans, ordering takeout food and things like that. And we should say preserving mainline jobs at these big airlines because there's all kinds of other pain, obviously, to go around and people who have to uh, depend on some of the other enhanced government aid, the better unemployment benefits and, and all of that. The people within the airline industry, uh, as well as throughout the economy, who aren't fortunate enough to work for the airlines that are benefiting uh, from this. Would I be correct to assume, by the way, that the loans, even if airlines don't take them, just the existence of that ability is helpful because just sort of from, a, you know, if I'm an investor and I'm looking at an airline, I know that the fact that it has that ability, it just kind of helps its credit rating, right? Whether or not it ends up taking that, it's just another avenue of, as you said, liquidity. Does that, does that make sense? Even, even, you know, Delta never takes it. Southwest never takes it. Whoever I, I as an investor, if, if I were one, would, would like it better that they have that ability? Well, it's always better to have access to cash than not. And so certainly the availability of that credit line would probably be seen as a good thing. No one lends you money without some strings attached. That string is often just called interest, but there may be other strings in this case. And so every airline, again, is going to make their decisions. But I think that 
certainly people think about the sustainability of the industry, the risk of failure goes down because those loans are available in someone's mind. You know, if someone's thinking, well, I don't think any airlines in the U.S. is going to fail in the next few months. But if this thing goes on for a year, maybe I like the fact that those loans are there or something. And so, yeah, it certainly helps. But if I had to guess, I'd guess most airlines end up, if not all, end up taking the grants to help keep their employment high. But um, something less than all of the airlines will end up taking the loans. That's just my guess now. Yeah. But we'll have to see what happens over the next couple of months to see what demand really does before making a real call on that. Sure. And basically, those loans are just going to be on the hierarchy of options for all these airlines, right? If you get a better deal in the, in the private markets, you'll take it. If that's your best deal, uh, you'll take that. And, and as you said, the answer might depend on, on the individual airlines. Well, so now, as promised, real airline news that has nothing to do with coronavirus. One new partnership that probably will happen and another that won't happen again. Now, let's actually start with the one that won't happen because that was supposed to be the bigger deal. If you don't succeed, as they say, try, try again. But that doesn't mean you'll succeed a second time. Japan Airlines and Hawaiian Airlines wanted to form a joint venture, the same kind Japan Airlines has with American Airlines, for example, or that American Airlines has with British Airways, where two airlines can actually coordinate schedules and fares. Uh, this, of course, would have been between Japan and Hawaii. Last year, the U.S. Department of Transportation said no. It would have made the two airlines too dominant in that market between Japan and Hawaii. So the airlines went back, made some tweaks, and now the DOT has said, oh, wait, what's this? No again. Ben, can you see any kind of pattern in terms of which of these kinds of arrangements tend to get approved and which ones don't? There's not perfect consistency from the U.S. government on this. But in general, they look at concentration by route of airlines. And they say, if two people, two airlines want to get together either in a true merger or in a joint venture where they would share scheduling and capacity and pricing strategy. Which um, which, like, and that's basically like a virtual merger in that market. That's right. And that requires antitrust immunity uh, to be able to do that, meaning that the Justice Department won't sue them for coordinating activity that is normally illegal if you coordinate it. <laughs> and so um, and so the, the, they tend to look at concentration. To do that, they use a statistic called the HHI, um, which is a statistical measure of you look at how many people fly in the market and how dominant is the service by this one carrier or in a joint venture case or merger in the combination of carrier. And does another airline really have a chance to have a sustainable, profitable chance at winning in that market? And if the HHI index, which is, well, the I is stands for index. So the HHI, um, <laughs> if it's too high, it sends out a flare to them that says, this is risky because it's likely going to lead to monopolistic pricing, meaning they can't really have good competition because they're so dominant. We're not customers aren't going to get fair competitive pricing in that market. So we're going to say no. And that's typically how they do it. So probably, and this is a, a strange thing to say, probably the best thing 
for a Japan Airlines Hawaiian Alliance is if some other airline started flying from Japan to Hawaii and they wouldn't want to they wouldn't want that to happen normally right they wouldn't want that competition but yeah. that might create enough of a competitive dynamic that the government would say now it's okay that you guys can get together because there's this other carrier there that is actually doing a pretty good job and they're going to keep you on the straight and level when it comes to your prices yeah. Well, American Airlines knows how it feels to have a joint venture rejected. The first time it tried with British Airways, it was rejected. The first time it tried with Qantas, that was rejected. Both of those were later approved. Uh, but a joint venture with Latam was never approved. That dragged down so long that it'll never happen because Delta ended up buying part of Latam to form its joint venture with it. American does, however, now plan a new code share deal with Philippine Airlines. Ben, a code share by itself isn't the same as a joint venture. No, that's exactly right. A code share, as most travelers know, means two different airlines sell the same flight as theirs. So a flight from Los Angeles to Manila, in a case if American does a code share with Philippine, for example, might be a Philippine Airlines airplane, and it'll be sold by Philippine Airlines under their flight number, but will also be sold in American's distribution system as an American Airlines flight with its own unique American Airlines number, even though that plane is operated by Philippine Airlines. And that's the code share. It's different than a joint venture because the airlines are still competing with each other in a sense. Philippine Airlines, in the example I just gave, may end up paying American sort of a commission for selling that ticket on the flight as an American flight or something. There's economic incentive to sell the flight on both sides. But the airlines can't, in just a code share, the airlines can't coordinate how many seats do you fly versus I fly. They can't coordinate what are your prices versus my prices. And one of the things that become a challenge in a code share sometimes is your code share partner may have lower prices than you want to sell on that flight, but you can't legally call them and say your price is too low because that would be colluding in prices. I remember a long time ago when I worked at Continental Airlines and we had a code share with America West. This was long before it bought US yeah. Airways and such. And I remember being very frustrated and going up to my CEO, Gordon Bethune's office and saying, <laughs> I don't know why we're in this code share. They keep undercutting our prices and it's hurting our revenue because we don't want the fares they're putting on our plane. Why do we let them put their code on there? And uh, ultimately, I had to learn that there were bigger issues. And in fact, my try, my optimization of that one flight didn't sort of uh, really wasn't really the right optimization. But I learned from that. But that's basically it. Code shares are really a distribution strategy for an airline. A code share partner brings an airline customers at a certain price, just like Expedia does, or just like the airline's own website does. So airlines, if they're intellectually honest, say, what does it cost me to earn a customer from my code share customer versus what does it cost me to get a customer from all the other ways I might get a customer? And they would choose the code share partner when it's more efficient, ideally. You know, I just had this flashback to, to it was what? The, the end of 2001, boarding at Ontario, California, near Los Angeles. So I was flying Continental to, well, connecting in Houston on my way back to Florida. And Continental was ground handled there by America West. I just have this this image of this this America West boarding pass, to, you know, getting on a, a, a Continental flight. And that's just an arrangement I hadn't thought about in many, many years until you brought it up just now. By the way, you gave the example between LAX and Manila, what's in it for Philippine Airlines? Well, uh, they're also going to be able to put their code on Americans' flights between LAX, between Los Angeles and Atlanta, Denver, 
Washington, all kinds of all kinds of other. That's places. right. Yeah. So uh, so so yeah, it works both ways. And there are what are called one way co-chairs and two way co-chairs. Sometimes the airlines sell each other each other's flights, and sometimes it's more often one airline selling the the flights of the others. By the way, you know you mentioned with the joint venture talk, all of the immunity that has to be granted for competitors to be able to uh, to coordinate. There's a report out by Phil LeBeau of CNBC that U.S. airlines that are very fierce competitors, that there's actually this this thought of them somehow basically, I mean, call it what you want. It's nothing I've ever heard of before, the way it would work, but sort of like one airline almost in the old regulation days before 1978 Airlines would operate a route. Right now, if you have two or three airlines serving one route, just one of them would operate the route for now while demand is so low. And I I mean, I can't recall anything like that. Obviously, you have the joint ventures that come about for other commercial reasons, but I can't remember something like that in the post-deregulation era because of a crisis. Am I correct, Ben, in thinking that that would be just entirely new for for southwest american and united to be selling each other's flights basically that would be entirely new at least since 1978 when the industry was deregulated now phil lebeau is a good reporter for cnbc and he talks to a lot of people in the industry so i don't think he'd make a report like that unless he'd heard from somewhere or from some you know um knowing individual at one or more airlines that airlines were thinking maybe this is a way for us to stem cash flow losses in the interim if there's three of us flying one route and we're all going to fly you know 20 percent full why not have just one plane fly 60 percent full there's economically you can see why in a really depressed demand environment that could be a way to optimize to me though seth it sounds so complicated and it sounds so fraught with all kinds of things you don't want to have happen in terms of collusion and who wins and who loses that i'd be surprised especially now that most of the airlines at least have the option to take these grants which are going to pay their employees through the end of september at least um, and sort of see what happens. And every airline now has cut so much capacity. The industry's got to be down 80, 70 to 90% right now in terms of total seats being flown. Yeah. That uh, I think that may be a phase two if, in fact, this goes so long that the grants have expired and airlines are going to have to start laying people off now and things like that. I'd be shocked to see anything like that happening this summer. What do you think? Right, yeah, and and you make a good point. Uh, they call in the headline on CNBC called it you know consolidating flights. But of course, airlines have, as, as you said, essentially consolidated their own flights. Right, you have markets where one airline was flying seven times a day, and now it's flying four or three, even just even just two times a day. Uh, and, and you're right, Phil's a great reporter, and that's the only reason why I brought this up. There's all kinds of stuff on the internet, <laughs> all kinds of rumors that, uh, that don't even merit mention. But what I saw, not only how interesting the topic was, but who reported it, I, I, uh, I thought it was indeed worth mentioning. But no, I agree. That sounds like a last resort, not a first one. Well, now it's time for passengers behaving badly, and I mean badly. There's a report on the CBC out of Canada, Ben, about Canadians going back to Canada, and this is going on all around the world, right? People repatriating, trying to get on the last flights back to wherever, and in some cases, knowing they were sick, knowing they, who knows, had coronavirus, depending on where they were coming from, but hiding it. 
to get on the flights because they thought that was their only way of getting home and and think about all the other risk and cbc they talked to some of these people who actually did this uh here's here's a uh university student in toronto who flew home from spain uh, march 14th cnbc or cbc rather quoted her saying now is just the worst time to be coughing sneezing or reporting any kind of symptom at an airport it wasn't information you volunteered so i just stayed quiet about it they didn't use her name in the report Uh, i I sure wouldn't want my name used if i were doing something like that but Man, I, I mean, you're putting so many people at risk, right? So many of us are staying home and doing all these things, even if we feel like, like when I stay home, Ben, it's more because I worry about other people, right? I, I and look, there are young, healthy people, people younger, and people probably even more fit than I am who have who have died from coronavirus. It's serious, but we also know that that it's more of a risk for people who are older or who have other health issues. So anyway, you know, on one hand, it's like I I think about all the things that I'm doing and all the things that other people are doing, mostly for the good of other people, right? Mostly because, you know, I have a hospital worker wife who comes home here and and, and if I were sick and I I would just feel terrible at the thought of, 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 uh, of passing it along to somebody else who could be even in even worse shape. And here you have people doing this. But on the other hand, you're stuck in Spain, you're stuck in Italy. What do you do? I mean, it's, it's crazy. You know, Seth, there have been a lot of books and a lot of movies that have been based on people doing amazing things when they're in a situation. And I guess you never know what you're going to do until you're in that situation. And I'm not at all justifying the behavior of the people who did that. I agree with you. I think it's loathsome behavior. It's incredibly selfish and incredibly dangerous. However, you're in that situation and to say, I'm going to do what's right for people I don't even know and not get on this airplane when I can sort of hide my symptoms, I think to expect that every person in that situation would make that decision is also a little naive. So I have to right. say I'm not all that surprised yeah, who that this happened, as, even though I think it's absolutely terrible. Right, because she stays in Spain and she, who knows, doesn't have access to a ventilator by now. You know, I mean, things are really bad, places like Spain and and Italy. So, so yeah, it, it's just... Mostly I bring it up to say this is one of those things that none of us ever uh, – it, it, it's, it's just all on a scale. Yeah, I, I remember reading – why was I there? I was, I was on this Wikipedia page reading about – I ended up there. There, there was that – you might vaguely remember a, a terrible situation in Kansas City, like early 1980s. There was a collapse of a skyway inside a hotel there, and lots of people – died uh it was just it was one of the major structural collapses uh it might have been when that bridge collapsed at the university of miami at florida international university and it was referenced this uh that that was the worst. you know several people died when this bridge collapsed over a road and referenced that that was the worst one since this incident in kansas city which i went back and read more about and there was a doctor who was one of the first on the scene back then who described what it was like to have to decide who to treat you know and there was somebody who maybe you could have helped but there was just somebody else who you thought you could help more and so you just give the one person morphine and let them die comfortably and i remember reading this and thinking wow like imagine something like that happening in the developed world and now we have this happening all around the world and you know you know, you know seth as we record this we're according to news a couple of weeks away from the government sending checks to a lot of people in the united states who need the money because they've lost their jobs or their hours or wake up back or something and just today in the paper 
There's a story about scammers who are looking to get the check that you haven't even received yet. So watch out for these scams. It's the same kind of terrible behavior that people looking to get personal advantage from massive worldwide disaster. It's terrible. Well, that's a whole other level of bad behavior. Obviously, it's one thing to be in that terrible situation of, you know, you're trying to get out, you're trying to get back from Spain to Canada where the situation is better, you know, so you're balancing your personal versus the world, another situation entirely, obviously, to just be trying to steal from people. Well, <laughs> well you're, stealing, to- you're stealing the rest of the plane's health in the first person's yeah. case. Yeah, 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 exactly. Well, now at Cruise Altitude here on Airlines Confidential, it's time for questions, comments, and fine or whine up next. Sponsorship info for the Airlines Confidential podcast is available at airlinesconfidential.com. With Ben Baldanza, I'm Seth Kaplan. This is Airlines Confidential. Fine or whine is next, but first... Let's go to the mailbag. Andrew from Brookline, Massachusetts writes, I miss the old days when the worst thing we had to suffer through was Seth's singing. (laughs) As we have no idea how long the social distancing is going to be required, I am wondering what ongoing flying requirements are required for pilots. Are they required to do a certain number of flights or hours per month or quarter? If this extends too long, will airline recoveries be limited by the need to do training flights or get simulator time. Thanks for the podcast. I've really enjoyed it. First things first, Ben. You know, I, I read that from Andrew, and I remembered that the song that I sang on here, uh, to the chagrin of Andrew and probably everybody, it's amazing we still had an audience after that show, right? Uh, I, I sang, do, do you, well, do you remember what it was? No, I don't remember what it was. I, I sang it, it was it was called Through the Rear. It was about boarding through the rear of the airplane back in the days when JetBlue used to do that at some of its stations. And it was to the tune of Through the Years by Kenny Rogers. Okay. Uh, now of now of blessed memory. Kenny Rogers died last week. Uh, and I was a big Kenny Rogers fan. And I remembered that that wasn't the only satirical airline song that i wrote to the tune of a kenny rogers song and so i thought how could i possibly not treat everybody with the other song but but i'm gonna make a deal with our audience i will do it and i i know you all want to hear it however in case i'm miscalculating we'll do it at the end of the show so that way we don't lose our audience now once i start singing okay we'll go through the rest of the content and then at the end uh you can listen you can you could just tune out you could tune out halfway through does that sound like a deal ben that sounds very fair seth (laughs) so so to andrew's question yeah what what about that this is causing and it's it's, you know part of the as part of the the bailout the assistance whatever you want to call it uh airlines have to keep paying everybody they can't cut pay but obviously they're cutting flights how are they balancing all of this uh, specifically with 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 respect to the pilot flying requirements? Well, first of all, it's good to remember that the Federal Aviation Administration, the FAA, which is part of the Department of Transportation in the U.S., is responsible for overseeing safety. And certainly a pilot being safe means a pilot ready to fly. And that's called currency in the pilot world, not currency like dollars, currency like are you current with your license or not? And a pilot's license actually never expires 
You never lose the fact that you're a pilot once you get a license, but you can lose currency. And to be current as a pilot, you have to have a medical check every once in a while. And a commercial pilot needs to have that check more than just the small plane pilot. And then to fly people, the general rule is pretty small. It's you have to have done three takeoffs and landings within the last 90 days. And that's all it is. So the reality is, is pilots take time off all the time. They might take a month of vacation if they're senior enough and they have that ability. They may be training for, they may be used in the training department for a while. So not actually flying the line for some time, but it's actually quite easy to stay current if you're in an aviation environment and you can fly every once in a while. So even if the airlines are only flying 10% of their schedules, they're flying a little more than that right now, but even if that's as low as it gets or that, I really don't think it's going to be a problem for them to keep their pilots current enough to be able to legally fly. And those takeoffs and landings, by the way, can be done on a simulator too. They don't have to be done on a real airplane. And so I think that with all pilots flying a little bit less, that's going to create more time because the amount of time, some of your currency needs to be done. Some of it is calendar based and some of it is flying based. So The bottom line is, I don't think there's a big risk to the industry here. Now, if the industry shut down for months and months, then yes, you would have an issue of, we got to get all our pilots current again before they do that. But in some cases, that might be put the pilot in the simulator, do three takeoffs and landings at LaGuardia for me, and then go out and fly the line. So it's important, but it's not that difficult an operational requirement to meet. It's a fantastic question by Andrew, and it's one that probably not a lot of people think about. But pilots, it's not like riding a bike. It's different, right? It's not like you remember what to do. I'm not suggesting that at all. But the currency requirements for a commercial pilot who's actively employed with a commercial airline are, are relatively routine to keep up. And even in a world where the airlines aren't flying that much, given they can do it by simulator or real planes, I don't think that's going to be the biggest operational challenge most airlines are facing right now. When you described how you always have your license, but but you, you need to remain current, it's almost like a Groupon, right? Where uh, the promotional value expires, but the original amount you paid doesn't, right? And I'm sure I'm sure people who spent like six figures becoming pilots and and having one of the most important safety sensitive jobs in the world appreciate me comparing their pilot's licenses to uh, to Groupons. Right? But, but, uh, but. But no, it's uh, that that's a uh, no, a great question, a great answer. That was one of sometimes you know these questions. I you know I, I more or less uh, no, and that was one where I, I I would have had no idea. So really appreciate uh, Andrew asking the question and then answering it. Well, do you have a question for us? You can call us at three zero five three seven nine seven four two nine and record a question for us anytime during the week. Again, three zero five three seven nine seven four. Fun to be able to play those on the air sometime, but you can also email us questions at airlinesconfidential.com. Again, questions, plural, at airlinesconfidential.com or jump on the airlinesconfidential.com website and you'll see a form on there to submit your question. Well, beginning our initial descent on today's show, it's time for fine or whine. We listen to an actual customer complaint and then we talk about whether a complaint is fine or if they're just whining. And Ben, uh, you have a complaint from back before the coronavirus uh, crisis started. Yes. Um, otherwise, most of the complaints would just be about my flight was canceled, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> this one is from Tyler of Lakewood, California, complaining about American Airlines this time. Tyler writes, this was not a good experience. I purchased a flight that left later than I had intended. 
The mobile app was difficult to use, and I assumed that I'd be able to resolve the issue by speaking with a person. And I tried to change it to the correct one at the airport to a flight departing from the same gate slightly earlier, which was not at full capacity. I explained my situation to the desk agent and later to a customer service representative on AA's hotline and was told that they couldn't help change the flight, but I was free to buy a ticket for $210 for the earlier flight if I wanted. What? How does that sound reasonable at all? I understand that flights fill up, but if there's still a seats available, AA would be happy to sell me one. I don't understand what is to be gained by being unhelpful as a policy. I'll obviously wait the two hours at the airport before giving AA another cent and never fly with American again. I guess service just isn't what it used to be. Thanks for nothing, AA. Okay. First of all, one, not really a tip, but just something to keep in mind. You know, once, once you're at the airport, it is the gate agent and just the people at the airport in general. Those are the people who are more likely to be able to help you than the people at the call center. They have a little more flexibility in terms of, hey, can I hop on that flight? doesn't sound like anybody did anything wrong here in terms of the policy, but it's funny. I had another, I'm having all these flashbacks today, Ben. Uh, this flashback is to 1993. I was on the phone with Delta. I had to make a change. It wasn't the same situation. It, it was tricky, long story, but basically I needed to make a change. And initially they said, no, you just have to buy a new ticket. And I said to them, there was all kinds of, there was an injury, whatever. I said, listen, if, if I have to buy a new ticket, I'm not going to buy it on Delta. And ultimately, I got a supervisor, and she was lovely, and uh, and, and, and they helped, and it, and it all worked out very well. But but when when he made that comment about having to buy a ticket, and obviously not having to buy a ticket, uh, so I wonder if, if that crossed his mind. Obviously, in this case, it wasn't that important. He was just going to wait two hours. It wasn't a, a changing cities and some of the stuff that I had to deal with then. But what do you say, Ben? This is something where maybe in the old days on an airline like American, hey, can I stand by for another flight? Can I hop on this flight? It, what doesn't make sense here is that you know he says he has to buy a whole new ticket. I think usually you are at least allowed to do a same day standby, like confirmed or not on airlines like American. And you have to pay for it nowadays, but you know, whether it's 75 bucks or something more than that, usually wouldn't be a whole new ticket. But but anyway, what's well, the that's big the picture? the first thing I thought. I thought, why didn't Americans say, well, you know, for like a 70 or $75 change fee, I can let you stand by for this fight? My guess is maybe he had a real cheap ticket, maybe a basic economy ticket that didn't, yeah, that that didn't give yeah. him that right to change you on the same day? That's right. Basic economy, you can't do it. That's yeah, right. Exactly. So my guess is that was the case, is he had a basic economy ticket. I don't know that for a fact, but the fact that they didn't give him – the ability to stand by for a, a smaller fee than just buy a whole new ticket. I've got to go with the airline on this one, and I know I am sound like a homer with that, but airlines have inventory of their seats, and being able to change flights on the same day ends up being very expensive because people make decisions counting on that if you do. Let me give you, an, let me give you a good story here, Seth. Uh, years ago, when I was at Spirit, we made a change to our website that we felt was very customer friendly. You used to go to the site and say, I want to fly from here to there on this date. And the site would tell you the price. And the change we made was we said, we're going to tell you the price every day from two weeks before you want to go to two weeks after you go. So you say, I want to fly on the 15th from New York to Fort Lauderdale. It would show you from the 1st to the 30th. 
So you could say, well, you know, look, if I just go a day earlier, I can save some money. Or if I go two days later, I can save a lot of money. Yeah. And we thought that was very, very friendly because customers could, you know, if they were flexible, could maybe save some money by finding things. The unintended consequence from that that we hadn't anticipated but learned very quickly was the number of requests we got from, you know, I bought this ticket, but I accidentally pushed the wrong date. Can I actually fly on this date? And then their incredulity when we said, no, you can't fly on that date. Because what they had done is they just looked at the calendar and bought the cheapest day and then said, I'll just call them and say, I want to fly on the day I really want to fly. And so, so because people behave like that, that's, Tyler, why you shouldn't have expected to be able to get on that flight earlier. And and I understand why airlines do that. And in a case like when it's just two hours, get a good Starbucks, you know, get on your iPad, read the news. And before you know it, you're going to be boarding that flight. And that is, unfortunately, like you said, these policies have to take into account everybody. And in this case, right, Tyler, sure, sounds like it's true. Just tried to book it quickly on the app, made an honest mistake. But there are less honest people. Well, on final approach, now that does it for Airlines Confidential this week. Please, fasten your seatbelt. Wait, wait, wait a minute, Seth. You promised earlier you were going to serenade us. I sure did, didn't I? And I said it would be a Kenny Rogers song. And okay, this is your fault now, Ben. (laughs) I shouldn't have reminded you, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, look, the, and and again, this is all too, kind of a strange way to honor Kenny Rogers, right? Poor guy. He can't even like come after me now. But, but, but of course, his most, you know, I guess there was that satirical song to, to through the years. But yeah, I think his most famous song of all, the one that was mentioned in all the obituaries is The Gambler. And I wrote a song. This is back in 2006 to the tune of The Gambler. Let me just, just looking over, just for people, there are people who know all these references and people who won't. Uh, so let me just run my eyes over to over the lyrics very quickly and give you a couple of references. Jerry Grinstein was, was Delta's CEO back then. Delta had begun flying the, the big network expansion and including, I mean, a lot of things that ended up working out well. Glenn Howenstein was, was the head of their network back then. He's now Delta's president. Uh, but yeah, there are a few routes, uh, Kiev and Bucharest that you, you, know, you just, well, that, that might be a, a bridge too far. I'd say uh, a reference that comes up here. Oh, and another thing, they had started all this turboprop flying at JFK. And it was like these little turboprops and it was gumming up the operation there, especially JetBlue was having a hard time dealing with it because they were, you know, they run an operation all day there and there'd be this little Delta painted turboprop. And there was sort of this allegation and Delta almost sort of, they never quite acknowledged it, but that part of it was just that, yeah, they were, they were just sort of trying to make life, uh, life more difficult for JetBlue. So with all of that context, let's sing you out of here. And again, feel free to uh, just... Turn off the radio when you're ready. On a warm summer's eve, on a plane bound for nowhere, I met up with Gerald Grinstein. We were both too tired to sleep, so we took turns of staring out the window of the 76 till boredom overtook us. And he began to speak. He said, Son, I've made a life out of taking people places. And knowing where they're going by the way they held their eyes. So if you don't mind me saying, I can see you're bound for Kiev for a taste of your soda. I'll give you some advice. So I handed him my plastic cup and he drank down all my seven up. 
Then he bummed my buy on board meal and asked me for a bite. And the plane got deathly quiet. And the cabin lost some pressure. He said, if you're gonna place the planes, boy, you gotta learn to pick the routes right. You got to know how to flow them. Through Atlanta to Dusseldorf, Nice, Venice, and Stuttgart, and Moscow just for fun. You got to fill JFK with turboprops. Wreck everyone else's ops. Fly from there to Bucharest and Pisa before you're done. Now every airline knows that the secret to profit will fly in is knowing what routes to throw away and knowing what to keep. Cause every hub's a winner and every hub's a loser. And the best that you can hope for is to break even and please the street. And when he finished speaking, he turned back toward the window, crushed up my plastic cup and faded off to sleep. And somewhere in the darkness, in his dreams, Delta broke even. And in his final words, I found an ace that I could keep. You got to know how to flow them. Through Atlanta to Dusseldorf, Nice, Venice, and Stuttgart, and Moscow just for fun. You got to fill JFK with turboprops. Wreck everyone else's ops. Fly from there to Bucharest and Pisa before you're done. You got to know how to flow. How to flow them. Through Atlanta to Tusseldorf, Nice, Venice, and Stuttgart, and Moscow just for fun. You got to fill JFK with turboprops. Wreck everyone else's ops. Fly from there to Bucharest and Pisa before you're done. You got to know how to flow them. Through Atlanta to Dusseldorf, Nice, Venice, and Stuttgart, and Moscow just for fun. You got to fill JFK with turboprops. Wreck everyone else's ops. Fly from there to Bucharest and Pisa before you're done. Nice job, Seth. Well, if anybody's still there, that's it for Airlines Confidential this week. I'm Ben Baldanza. No, no, no one's still there. I'm not even <laughs> going to bother saying my name because I don't want anybody to remember who's saying that. See you next week. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.